Well, good morning again. It's a good day at Randall, amen? It's a good day at Randall here. Let's stand as we go before the text this morning. We will be covering all of Romans 14 today, so get ready. Here we go. First, let's say our prayer of recommitment to Shema together. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. Romans 14 says this. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputed matters. We don't do that, right, friends? One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat the, uh, with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us die for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean itself in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone who, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever, re so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that is done not from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So bedtime at the Long household has been interesting lately, as we've uh, introduced our, our brought our uh, third child, our daughter Rudy, into the world, uh, we're learning a new rhythm of bedtime, that the old ways of doing bedtime just 
don't quite work anymore. It takes a little too long. There's a little too many things. And so we're consolidating the process a bit, uh, trying to figure out what works now in this season. But one thing we definitely do every night, and we don't uh, want to, to end that at all, is uh, bedtime stories. We always do bedtime stories with the kids. Uh, there might be a few less stories going on these days, but we try them every night to have that nice time, that kind of calm down time to read bedtime stories. One of our favorites is one called Bear Shadow. I don't know if you know Bear Shadow, but it's by an author named Frank Ash. And in fact, uh, he, was, he was, uh, lived in Molly's town when she was growing up, and he actually would read his stories to her in the library. So this has kind of a special meaning for our family as well. And it's all about Bear. And Bear, uh, he writes a number of these stories of Bear going on little adventures. And this one, Bear Shadow, is about uh, Bear going fishing. So if I could just uh, tell the story uh, quickly, this is Bear, and he's gone fishing, and he uh, wants to catch that fish. He wants to uh, nab the big one, but the problem is, is his shadow casts into the water, so it scares all the fish away. All the fish are scared by his shadow. This gets Bear annoyed. Bear gets annoyed by his shadow, so he tries to think of things to do in order to get his shadow to go away. So one of the things he does, he tries to run away from the shadow. He thinks, maybe if I run away, the shadow won't follow me. Maybe I'll be faster than the shadow. But to no avail, the shadow is just as fast, uh, literally lockstep with Bear. (laughs) So Bear goes, all right, well, what am I going to do? So he tries nailing his shadow to the ground. And he uses a lot of nails. But as soon as he steps away, that that shadow just sneaks right away from those nails. So to no avail, Bear does not get to do that. So he tries to dig a hole and bury his shadow. So he digs and he digs and he goes and he leans in and shadow seemingly falls in. But as soon as he starts to try to bury him, shadow jumps out and he can't do it. He gets frustrated. He, he takes a nap. He runs into the house. He does all these things to try and get rid of his shadow until finally he strikes a deal with shadow. He goes, all right, shadow, I can't get rid of you, so let's, let's make a deal. He said, if you will let me catch a fish, I'll let you catch one too. And he says, not if you agree. And he nods and shadow nods. He's like, all right, it's a deal. So he goes back to the place to catch his fish, but of course at this time the sun has moved across the sky so that the shadow is no longer on the water. And to Bear, he thinks shadow's keeping his end of the deal. And so he goes and fishes and he catches that fish, and of course as soon as he catches his fish, shadow catches his as well. And they're both in agreement. It's a nice story and uh, we really enjoy it. And the kids love it because they get the joke right? They're old enough to get the joke that throughout this whole story, Bear doesn't realize that his shadow isn't real. He doesn't realize that he's the reality and his shadow is merely a shape of who he is. And so the kids laugh and they giggle and they go, but it's his shadow. And they get, they, they get the joke that throughout the entire book, the punchline of the story is that Bear never realizes that his shadow is just that. A shadow. He thinks it's real all the way until the end, and he can't tell the difference between the shadow and his reality. He can't tell the difference between his shadow and the reality. Now, we as Christians, we laugh at a story like this, but that can be our problem too. 
we sometimes confuse and we mix up the shadows for the reality. And Paul, in, in, in this chapter, Paul uh, in Romans chapter 14, addresses this in the Roman church. And throughout this chapter, he's going to press on them. and He's going to say, listen, you're focusing on shadows. And what will unite us is keeping our eyes on the reality. So let's take a look for a second here and see what he really wants to impress upon this church that is divided. So Paul begins by saying this. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, as a way of review, the, the, the church in Rome was made up of two groups. And if you've been in this sermon series, you've heard me say, it's time for quiz time. What are the two groups that are dividing the church in Rome? Jews and, Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews and Gentiles are working out how do we form a unified church in Rome. Now, Jews are histor historically God's chosen people. Jews had always been the religious insiders, the ones that were given God's law, the ones who had the family pedigree, the ones who had it all figured out. And the Gentiles were anyone not a Jew, the historical outsiders, the pagans, the enemies. Those who had converted to Christianity were still seen as less than by their Jewish brothers. And so this created a lot of tension and division, which is the primary reason Paul writes the book of Romans. And the core dispute centered on how to follow Jesus in this new way of following after God. How do we follow Jesus together, two groups that historically were at odds against each other? And so you had the Jewish Christians, and this is your fill-in. You had the Jewish Christians who could not bring themselves to abandon the requirements of the law that they had observed all their lives. They had observed these laws of God in the Old Testament their whole lives. Their fathers had observed them. Their grandfathers had observed them. Their great-grandfathers, all the way back, generation after generation, had been following these laws. This is how you make yourself right before God. This is how you follow after Him. This is how we live our lives. And they were having a lot of trouble putting the pieces and, and, and reorienting themselves to a new uh, way of living in God's new kingdom, in, in, in the kingdom that Jesus had established. While the Gentile Christians felt no need to observe these laws, they were free in Christ to live by the spirit of the law without having to adhere to the letter of the law. And so what was happening is that the Jews condemned the Gentiles for their cavalier, cavalierly dismissing God's law. So in your fill-in this morning, know that the Jews condemned the Gentiles for cavalierly dismissing God's law, while the Gentiles poo-pooed the Jews. Yes, write that in. Poo-pooed the Jews for looking down on them and for clinging to the old ways when a new way had come. And so this whole dispute came all centered on how do we worship God? Do we do it the way God has asked us to do it for generations after generations? Or now that Christ has come and has fulfilled the law, we live under the spirit of the law, but we don't necessarily have to live by the letter of it anymore. And this caused great fighting and tension and disputes. Talk about an awkward uh, uh, situation around the Thanksgiving table, right? It's like, oh, I'm, do we pray? Do we 
Is this kosher? I don't know, right? There's all of these uh, issues going on. And since chapter 12, Paul has been giving practical instruction on how to live out the gospel. And except, so he writes in, the, in chapter 14, as he's continuing to describe to this church how we're to live at peace with one another, he says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over these disputable matters. He says, we're, we, we've got to work this out. We've got to figure this out. And so now, in chapter 14, he's going to begin to explain all the ways that we can do this together. So what were these disputable matters? What specifically is Paul talking about here? Well, he gives two major examples. There were different ones. There was all sorts of uh, debates and questions, but he gives two kind of prime examples here. And the first one is this, it's food. The Roman church had a problem with food. He writes this, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. You see, in the Old Testament law, they had regulations on what you could and couldn't eat. And Jews even today call this process kosher. They had to eat kosher. There were certain things that God wanted them to avoid, certain ways that they had to prepare the food, and doing this was a way that showed God and the world that they were set apart and different. And so they read in places like Leviticus 11 that says you may eat any animal that has split hoof, completely divided, and that chews its cud. Can't do that. You may not eat those animals. That means camel and rabbit and pig were out. No bacon. Delicious, delicious bacon. And then they said other things. It goes on to say that like meat can't be boiled in its mother's milk. Okay, got it. Won't do that. And along with all sorts of other regulations that they found, it made kosher meat challenging to find. Actually, if you go back to the last slide, you actually see that there's a Roman, this is a, a Roman um, uh, piece of artwork, and they're going to present animals to be eaten in the temple. And right here we see a pig. It's actually very difficult. The, the, the Christians in the first century and in Rome found it actually very difficult to find kosher meat that didn't break some or all of the commandments that they had been living by for years and years and years. But then they also read in other places, like in Exodus 34, that said this, do not worship, God says, do not worship any god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with the, those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. So they write, they go, okay, well, we can't, we can't eat the meat sacrificed to other gods and in other nations. And the problem is the Romans were polytheistic. They, they worshipped many gods, but they also believed in many evil spirits as well. And one of the folklores that Rome believed in was that there were also these evil spirits that were floating in the air. And the evil spirits wanted to, to attack or attach to a body and kind of get in and, and be a part of you. And so you were constantly thinking, how do I keep these evil spirits from, from entering into to my body? And they believed one of the ways, uh, the main re way that an evil spirit got into your body is they attached themselves to your food. And so that when you ate it, then the evil spirit would then be a part of you, particularly to meat, that they were somehow attracted to that. Who knows why? But they are. 
And so they were very sensitive to that, that they did not want these evil spirits. And the only way the spirits could be removed from food was to sacrifice it to a god. Thus, food sacrifices gained the favor of the god, but it also cleansed the meat from demonic contamination. You didn't know if your piece of meat had the poltergeist on it. So you had to sacrifice it in order to make sure it was clean. Now, part of the sacrificial uh, regulations in Rome was that the priest got a cut. That the priest was doing, the, the, the Roman priest, if the priest was doing all the work of the fires and the sacrifice and all that stuff, you had to give him a portion of whatever meat you sacrificed. Think of it as taxes. You had to pay your tax in order to get your meat back cleansed. Well, these priests were doing this constantly. And so they were keep getting paid, but they were getting paid in so much meat, which doesn't sound like a bad currency to me. You could pay me in meat anytime. I'd, I'd enjoy that. But they had so much of it that they began selling it in the marketplaces. This was the official priest's meat that you knew was cleansed. And this is basically where they got most of their protein from, is from these places. So again, if you're a Jew, even if you're a Jewish Christian, you're like, okay, well, first off, the meat might not be and likely isn't kosher. Second of all, we read in Exodus 34, I'm not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and basically all this meat in the marketplace is. So rather than risk it, they just went vegetarian. They said, well, we can't, we can't guarantee that any of this is going to be good, so we got to eat vegetables. And the Gentiles had to hear it on Facebook. We get it, Jews. You're vegetarians. You're living your best life. We get it, right? And they did. They stuck it in the Gentiles' faces. Like, well, you know, I mean, if you want to eat the meat, sacrifice to idols, and break every law we know, go for it. But we're going to eat vegetables. And I'm going to Instagram my vegetable plate and, and post it just so, just so you can see it. The other thing that they fought over, one of the main things that Paul gives us is days, holidays particularly. He says one person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Because the Jews liked the party, and God actually gave them a lot of festivals and a lot of, uh, of, of uh, sacred days to observe and to feast over and things like that. So there was religious festivals. So they read in places like Leviticus 23. That speak to the Israelites, he says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which are, you are to proclaim as a sacred assembly. So throughout the year, there were these sacred days and seasons like Passover or atonement or here in the picture. This is uh, 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 tabernacles where they would build tabernacles outside. And so throughout the year, they had these seasons. And these, these aren't just one-day events. A lot of times, these are, these are seven days, ten days long. So they had these seasons throughout the year in which God had told them to make it holy and make it different. They were set apart. But not only did they have seasonal uh, celebrations, they also had monthly celebrations. They read in places like Psalm 81 that said, Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day. For this is a statue for Israel, a law of God. So on the first of each month, they played music and they danced and they ate to recognize the, the start of a new month. So they had seasons where they, they, they had sacred days. Then they had monthly, uh, once a month they had it. But then they also had weekly ones because they read in places like Genesis 2, 
By the seventh day, God had finished his work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, made it set apart, made it different. Because on that day, he rested from all his work of creating that he has done. So each week, they kept a weekly Sabbath where they did no ordinary work, a a depiction of a family sitting down, uh, resting in their home together. They didn't move. They didn't travel. They stayed in their home. They went to synagogue. They came home. they, They rested. It was a holy, sacred day. So they ate three meals a day, and they celebrated Sabbath every week, and the new moon every month, and the festivals throughout the year, you can see why there was ample opportunity to judge, to boast, to fight over who was doing it right. And what Paul wants the Roman church to see is that there is a difference between shadows and the reality. There's a difference between shadows and the reality. Let's go over that. If you have your, uh, note, uh, your, your card with you, we'll talk about this now. The reality... The reality is the rigid core of our faith. The reality is the rigid core of our faith. It's the thing that, things that don't change. It's the things that stay true. It's the things that I believed and my father believed and my great-grandfather believed all the way through the generations in the past, all the generations in the future, and it will never change. It's the bedrock of our faith. The reality is everything in the first 11 chapters of Romans. Our total depravity, our need for a savior, and our total freedom in this good news. Paul says the reality is this. We will all stand before God's judgment seat because it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. Paul says the reality is that the kingdom of God is of righteousness and in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's real. That's core. That's central. It is the unchanging, unswerving, rigid core of our faith. The reality of who we are. But then there are shadows. And the shadows are the fluid expressions of our faith. The fluid expressions of our faith. Shadows are meant to display the reality. They're meant to give a picture of what the reality is. So when we sing together, it is a picture of the reality that every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge God. And when we fellowship together, whether it be meals or in the foyer or in small groups or around our corridors, it is a picture of the reality that the kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Shadows should look like the reality. They should have the shape of the reality. They should point to the reality. But as Bear never figured out, they aren't the reality. Realities are the unchanging, unswerving, rigid marks of our faith, while shadows are the changing, swerving, fluid expressions of our faith. You see, how you express the reality of the gospel in Africa will look different than the way that we express this reality in America. And how you express the reality of the gospel in Williamsville might look different than it does in downtown Buffalo. And the reality, how you express the reality of the gospel in 1950 will look differently than it does in 2019. 
particularly the volume of our worship. Another word for shadow you could use is the word worship. Worship is the expression of our faith. And if you think about it that way, the Roman church was caught up in a worship war. Worship wars that we still have today. Worship wars that split churches. See, there's a difference between the reality and a shadow. And the key to finding unity in a church, the key to overcoming a worship war, is to be able to tell the difference between the two. And to that end, Paul gives a few examples and instructions. He says this, The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat and everything must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted them. You see, when we know the difference between the shadow and the reality, we don't have to judge who is doing it right. If we all recognize the reality, if we all affirm the reality, if we all live into God's reality, then everyone can live under the shadows that help express it for themselves and live under the shadows of of what we as a community have decided how we want to do it together. One feels in their conscience they should recognize Passover as a spiritual act of worship, while another in their conscience allows them to do something else as a spiritual act of worship, and God accepts both. Or he continues on, he says, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. So when we know the difference between the shadow and the reality, we're able to lay down the expressions that we prefer if and when they become a detriment to somebody else's faith. If one feels in their conscience they shouldn't eat meat as a spiritual act of worship, wonderful. Another, even though they do not have the same spiritual conviction, doesn't barbecue in front of them as a spiritual act of worship. Because love sharpens the shadows. It refocuses our mind. When we have the lens of love, it focuses us in and allows us to, and sharpens our view and allows us to distinguish and differentiate between the shadows and the reality. Paul writes it this way uh, to, the, to the church of Colossians who is struggling with this same thing. He says this in Colossians 2. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. See, Jesus is the reality. I want to invite our friends up uh, to give us one more, uh, lead us one more time in, in some music, in a shadow of the reality. Would you come up as we close? Friends, Jesus is our reality. He is the glue that brings us together. He is the sustainer that keeps us together. So there are styles, there are different styles of our music, and there are the clothes that we wear to worship, and there are the days and disciplines we keep, and there are the things we choose to abstain from, and there are the things we choose to partake in. And the key to finding unity at at our church, the key to us banding together as a church at Randall, is to be able to tell the difference between our shadows and our reality. So friends, we will not all prefer the same style of music, 
Maybe some of you guys felt that this, this, this week. We will not all prefer the same style of music, but we all agree that Jesus is the one we're singing to. And we will not all wear the same clothes, but we will all make sure that Jesus is the one we honor with our dress. And we will not all observe the same moments and practices, but we all recognize that Jesus is the one that ties us together. And we will not all abstain from the same things, but we will allow Jesus to lead our convictions. And we will not all partake in the same things, but we all commit to them pointing to Jesus. Because God's plan to redeem the world is to create a kingdom of people who would so radically unify and love and support one another, the rest of the world would take notice. Because when we follow the shadows, our attention comes off the reality. And when we fight over the shadows, we lose our witness. We become just like everyone else. Because it's easy to divide over preferences, and it's easy to huddle around commonality. The world knows how to do that. It's hard to unify in the midst of our disagreements. But it will change everything if we can. And next week, we're going to celebrate a heritage at Randall Church, a church that has lasted for nearly 200 years. You don't survive for 200 years unless you're focused on the reality. You don't survive for 200 years unless you know the difference between a shadow and a reality. And we get to celebrate that this church, a church that looks different, a church that has multiple generations, a church that has different socioeconomic levels, a church that looks different in many, many ways, and yet we come together every Sunday morning to worship the reality. That changes the world. And therefore, we can come together and we can sing and we can celebrate and we can keep our focus on the glue that brings us together, the sustainer that keeps us all connected, Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that we get to be part of a congregation that loves. And Lord, as we take our offering now, we uh, bring our tithes, we bring our offerings uh, before you. As we listen to a group of, of teenagers and adults coming together uh, to worship you, to use a shadow in order to express your reality. God, we are grateful for a church that keeps its eyes on you, even in the midst of disagreements. Lord, continue to help us to keep our eyes on you. When, when, when disagreements arise, Lord, help us not to judge and help us not to come uh, rubbing in our freedom from somebody else. But God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the cross because you are the reality and you are the shadow. You, we, our shadows point to you who are the reality. And we thank you for that. In your name I pray.